Welcome to the HR Room Podcast, the podcast series from Insight HR, where we talk to business leaders from around Ireland and share their advice on how to create the HR systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, simply visit www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. And remember, if you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Okay, let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of the HR Room podcast. At the end of March 2023, the European Parliament adopted the EU Pay Transparency Directive, which will come into force on the 6th of June 2023, giving EU member states a deadline of the 7th of June 2026 to transpose its provisions into their national laws. But what does it mean? What are the details? And what can we do now to prepare? And to talk to us about this today, we're delighted to be joined by Shiva Rush, partner and head of the Dublin office at Lewis Silken. Thanks for joining us, Shiva. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for inviting me on to talk about pay transparency and gender pay gaps. Brilliant stuff, looking forward to it. And as always, we're joined by our very own Mary Cullen, Founder and Managing Director here at Inside HR. How are you, Mary? I'm great, thanks, Owen, and lovely to have you here, Shiva. Thank you. Brilliant stuff, so we'll jump right in. Uh, and I suppose, Shiva, we'll come to yourself first uh, to get a bit of, I suppose, the context, the details, that kind of stuff. Um, so can you talk to us through some of the key details, I suppose, of the EU Pay Transparency Directive? What is it? Who does it apply to? When is it coming? All that good stuff. Yeah, so um, this is an initiative by the European Commission and Parliament to uh, tackle um, gender pay and and equal pay for equal work. Because, you know, while many jurisdictions have had gender pay gap reporting, we're still seeing an average gender pay gap in Europe of 13%. And there's a big drive by uh, the EU and the social partners to try and bring this down. Um, I kind of think of the, the directive as having... Um, uh, four main pillars around um, categorization of jobs, uh, consultation and pay audits and, and reporting, and then pay transparency as well. Um, so it needs to be implemented on this day, actually in 2026, by the um, Irish government, and it will apply to private employers when it, when it comes. Fantastic stuff. Uh, and I suppose the key part you mentioned there, Shiva, was the the gender pay gap reporting uh, part of it, which is, again, something we're, we're quite familiar with, thankfully, here. How does this kind of affect or supplement that whole gender pay gap reporting piece? I, I think, Owen, that we'll see it like give um, the gender pay gap regulations much more teeth because I think that transparency has been what is being seen as a key blocker in terms of actually getting gender pay gap um, gender pay gaps down. So at a very high level, employers in Ireland since 2022 have had to report on kind of mean and median pay gaps. And we do go a little bit further than, for instance, the UK. We have to report on pay gaps between part-time and fixed-term workers as well. And we also have to include, a, a, a employers also have to include a narrative in their um, gender pay gap report around kind of what's causing the gaps and how they're going to address it. But what we're going to see is a requirement for employers to um, to categorise jobs. So that's to categorise roles in terms of equal pay for equal work, which is of equal value. And that work must be based on objective and non-gender-based criteria. Um, 
And it will also require employers if, for instance, in a category there is a pay gap of 5% or more, well, then they may have to conduct an equal pay audit in conjunction with employee representatives. So we're also seeing a little bit more consultation with employee representatives being required as well. For instance, employee representatives will be entitled to the methodology that employers use in calculating their gender pay gaps. So at the moment, that's not required either. And they will be entitled to, I suppose, challenge or test that methodology. And it will also require senior managers to verify the stats that are being reported, um, which isn't a requirement at the moment. So we're seeing uh, a a much more... um, I I suppose, much more detailed requirements on organisations when they're carrying out their gender pay gap reporting. And the thresholds are quite similar. So there's a little bit of an overlap between, um, at the moment, our gender pay gap reporting in Ireland is for employers with more than 250 employees. And that's the same for 2023. In 2024, that's going to come down to uh, employers who have between 150 and 250 employees. And then it will apply to employers who have more than 50 in 2025. Now, the directive, uh, the the threshold there will come down to employers who have more than 100 employees. So there's a little bit of a discrepancy um, in terms of thresholds, and it'll be interesting to see how the Irish government deals with that when they do implement the directive. Definitely. And I think there's there's a lot of key detail to it, and we will chat about it throughout the, throughout the conversation, and we'll also make sure to link to it actually as well um, in the show notes there. Um, I suppose... Mary, and actually I'll come to you, both of you for this one, but I'll come to yourself, Mary, if that's first, if that's all right. Um, might be a bit of a left field one, Mary, but I'm thinking just through the detail that, that you've outlined there, does this potentially open up kind of data and conversations about pay discrepancies across other grounds, Mary, like beyond gender and that piece, although it's a huge obvious part of it. Do you think there's probably opportunities there that, that new, new information, new conversations might appear? Yeah, I think so, because, I mean, you're seeing that in in the UK now, where some companies starting to report on ethnicity and and pay gaps there. So I do think that there's the potential, given the level of work that organisations are are having to do already for the gender pay gap reporting and the level of work that they're going to have to do uh, when it comes to pay transparency as well. So I I think it's probably going to be a a natural extension of um, the work that's already been done. And, you know, organisations, I suppose, are, are going to probably have to have more dedicated personnel working in this whole area and you know a lot of organizations probably scrambled last year to get it done particularly given how close the uh, deadline was you know it was being talked about for ages and and suddenly came into effect in May um, with the deadline of December and I think a lot of organizations scrambled around then we'll see more sophistication I think as we go forward and I think employers will use it um, as an opportunity to both attract and retain uh, employees in the future. And just like we had with uh, pay gap reporting with organisations like OnPost coming forward and um, being early 
to the table and publishing results early. I think we'll see the same with um, pay transparency. But it's a bit of a scary um, thing, I think, for managers, for HR, for organizations. You know, how are, you, how are these conversations going to happen? Because realistically, you're going to have to be able to sit down with your employees and explain um, you know, the criteria you used in the first place to determine the pay attached to particular roles and, and tell everybody what they're earning, you know, in HR for many, many, many years. You know, we even write uh, clauses into contracts and handbooks trying to prevent employees sharing that information. And suddenly we're now... In, entering into a world where everybody's going to know everything about people's pay. I think it's 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 going to be quite interesting. And I know the devil is in the detail, Shifra, you know, uh, you're probably going to tell me, no, it's not going to, it's not going to work quite like that. But from a HR perspective, we're sitting there thinking, wow, what's going to happen next? And how, how are managers going to explain this? So getting getting the work done early strikes me as really important. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I suppose a similar question to yourself then, Chiever. Do you think the, the realms of what we've seen so far with the directive could have potentially opened up those conversations about, I suppose, full transparency? Yeah, I mean, um, I suppose there is a specific section uh, in the directive which refers to intersectional discrimination. So it's not just, you know, if there's discrimination and it's based on a combination of sex and any other grounds that they can be protected too. But I mean, I wouldn't disagree with Mary in terms of, you know, how like getting into those minutiae and given how small Ireland is and and uh, I suppose, you know, it's a small market, everybody knows everybody. And, you know, while while employers might be um, reporting on gaps where you're getting into much more narrow categories, you're talking about smaller groups, people who work together, they will know each other. I think that it will. Um, I think we'll certainly see more equal pay claims because there there is this ban on secrecy now so employees can't be con- well sorry in in the directive there is a ban on any contractual provision that prevents an employee from disclosing their pay grade or their pay for the purposes of an equal pay claim so i do think we will see this like in germany there was a case recently where an employee was allowed to use the stats that had been reported in a gender pay gap report or an equal pay assessment i think theirs is a little bit more detailed um to ground an equal pay claim so I think that's the way it's going. And I think that's the way the EU wants it to go. They want, uh, you know, I think they just see that the this gender pay gap, you know, and it's a great initiative. And, you know, everybody knows that that these gaps, will, you know, they take a longer time to reduce. They're, they're never immediate, but it's just not moving quickly enough for them. So uh, the, the introduction of, of more transparency and getting into more kind of um, categories and, you know, employers will really have to, be careful about how they organise jobs, how they organise groups, how they organise these categories, how they define these categories, um, to to which will give you know information as power, and employees will be getting more information. So definitely, and a very interesting one to watch. Mm-hmm. I think one of the headline items as well, Chiva, that I think particularly from an applicant perspective will be really welcome. Um, 
in the kind of recruitment process. There is an update there, isn't there, around pay transparency in that regard? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so there will be a requirement on employers to um, include at least the pay scale or where the pay scale starts for a particular job. Um, so employees will have the right to the pay range for the role. And it has to be, that information has to be given in a manner that and the directive is interesting, it says that it ensures an informed and transparent negotiation on pay. So that either has to be set out in the advertisement or it has to be given to the employee prior to um, interview or, you know, for when they're going for the role. Interestingly as well, an employer, when they're hiring somebody, will not be allowed to ask for their pay history, even in their current role or in historical roles that they've had. So that's a real circuit breaker, I think, because that will stop the inherent lower pay that that uh, women in the workplace experience and and because it's been fostered for so long that it'll it'll you know removes the requirement for them to have to disclose that ingrained potentially lower pay that they've been experiencing so that the value of the job is based on the role and the work and not the person doing it 100% and I suppose Mary from just an additional perspective. It probably is a real game changer for applicants, Mary, but there's probably a potential there as an applicant. It's quite a game changer for, I mean, hiring companies as well, isn't it? Yeah, because it's a traditional question, isn't it? In in the interview process, you know, that's that's where we always would have done that in uh, interviews. Up until quite recently, we would have been asking people what their last salary was and what their expectation was. So an awful lot of uh, organisations do that, you know, right from your corporates down to your uh, SMEs to try and establish what someone's expectation is before they actually uh, offer a job at a a certain level. Um, So I do think that will be interesting from an advertisement perspective um, by publishing, and I'm seeing a lot more of it now anyway, where, you know, HR teams are publishing the actual salary or the salary range. Um, And when people are coming in, they're starting the negotiation at that point rather than well you you weren't this in your last job so yeah we're prepared to give you a five percent increase on that or a ten percent increase on that no more what you're looking for is outside what you're currently earning kind of approach to it so I think that will open things up and make it fairer for any any person coming into a role at the moment you know, salaries are on the up and up. Every time somebody leaves, they're replaced for more money. That's just the way it's happening um, at the moment. But I think as things settle down, the, these are positive developments um, and, you know, provide a, a fairer, more equitable way for organisations. But that being said, if you take a look under the hood of many organisations and, and you try to look at uh, some kind of consistency across the board, oh, it's frightening. It's frightening. There's work to be done. There really is. People have a lot of work to do to, to you know, look at the categorization of roles, how they determine pay, uh, how they determine 
pay progression um, with the development of skills and knowledge and and all of that. So, you know, articulating all that is going to be really difficult, but you can't articulate it if you don't have it set in stone already. So um, I, my advice is start working now, get your specialist in, in to take a look at this stuff um, because you don't want to wait till the last minute. 100%. And that's something we'll dig deeper in because it is a, a piece of advice that is quite consistent through a lot of topics we speak about, Mary. So we'll dig a bit deeper into that shortly as well, I think. Um, Shiva, just like another bit on that, but the nitty gritty side of things. Um, one that I know from my perspective hasn't been as much of a headline item, but it is something that you touched upon there, Shiva, is the average pay levels. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and what that entails? Yeah, so there is a specific right to information on them. Employers will be obliged to remind their employees annually of this right to to information. So that's information around pay levels and the average pay levels within categories. And uh, that's broken down by sex um, for the categories of worker. Um, So again, just remind people the category is based on people who are doing the same work or work of equal value and that that's based on non-discriminatory objective and, and gender neutral criteria. Um, again, we're seeing, I suppose, a little bit more around employee reps. And I think that employers will have to consider, you know, do they have an information and consultation forum? Will they will they be looking at nominating representatives in a similar way where there's a transfer of undertakings or a collective redundancy and information and consultation is required? It, will it be similar to that where you're, you're establishing kind of an employee representative body for the purposes of the, the equal pay and uh, the, the pay transparency legislation and, and how is that going to work? And I suppose just on a, on a little tangent, but getting back to Mary's point about employers having work to do to familiarise themselves with the obligations, there is an obligation in the directive on member states to provide employers with the tools to be able to do this. But to be honest, by the time the legislation comes in, that could be too late. I think that Mary's right, employers need to start looking at this now. Um, so so also in terms of, I suppose, the average pay levels and things like that is the fact that, that employees and their representatives and, and bodies, so bodies like the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission, which is currently involved in, in the gender pay gap as well, they will have the rights to test the accuracy of the information and the methodologies that are being used by employers and uh, to confirm those and um, the employers must consult with the representatives in regard to the methodologies that they've used um, to to calculate their gaps and there will also be a right to ask for additional clarification and then that clarification or or further detailed information must be given within a, a reasonable time period. I think probably the most groundbreaking aspect of this kind of average pay and, and pay levels and information is this requirement where within a category the pay gap is bigger than 5% um, and an employer will have to conduct a, a kind of a joint pay assessment or you know what might be known as an equal pay audit. That's where there isn't a justification on the basis of objective criteria for for that gap being more than 5% or if there is no justification and it hasn't been remedied within six months, then the, the audit must be carried out. And, you know, it's it's all with a view to trying to 
identify where there are unjustified gaps to remedy those gaps and, and you know, to prevent differences in pay. So, you know, while we were getting into the minutiae and, and, you know, kind of how employers are going to plan and, you know, what they will have to deal with, and it might all sound like doom and gloom, but overall, I think we need to be aware that this is to... Um, you know, remediate an inequity and, and it may be something that employers just are inherently unaware of because of the, the way the working world has gone and the way kind of, you know, negotiations go when you hire somebody. So overall, it, it will be a good thing, but it, it'll be it'll be a challenging hill for, I, I think, particularly smaller employers or kind of um, organisations that would be large domestic employers in Ireland. But for instance, you'd have a lot of global multinationals who would have operations in Ireland, but they may well be in France, Spain, Germany, where they already carry out these audits. Um, and for them, they may have the people like the project managers or the core stakeholders who already look at gender pay gap reporting in those places. And in France and Germany, you already have categorization. So they may be able to, to do something similar. I think the key for them is keeping an eye on timelines because they might have under the, this pay transparency directive. And by the time it's implemented in their various jurisdictions, you know, it may be that there's a rolling reporting that they have to report every single month in different jurisdictions. So um, it'll be interesting to see just how cohesively it is implemented in different jurisdictions. 100% and it's quite robust and quite detailed, but as you said, Jeeva, it's the sign of progress as well, which is, which is fantastic. And again, Mary, I think we've probably had a lot of, I mean, we've, we've done, I'd say we're nearly into double figures on podcast this year, Mary, about kind of new laws and new considerations for employers. But I think, Mary, it's, I mean, it's, again, it's progress. So when, well, obviously, sorry, on the back of that, Mary, I think when you are looking at policies and procedures, because I suppose HR professionals are feeling like there's been seven or eight new things I need to think about all of these things. I suppose one key bit of advice from ourselves, Mary, usually is by looking holistically at your policies and procedures, right? I suppose I'm not saying that any any new law will contravene or can kind of conflict in your policies and procedures when it comes to this, but it is important, Mary, to look at your policies, your procedures, not in isolation, Look across the board and see how they can see how you can build a kind of a, a robust, refreshed handbook and policies and that kind of stuff, Mary, isn't it? Yeah, well, you know, to to Shifra's point about uh, you know different jurisdictions and different reporting deadlines and all of that, you know, sometimes you'll see organisations look to where where there is maybe the most stringent reporting and apply it right across the board so that they're they're taking one approach uh, rather than multiple different approaches depending on the jurisdictions they're in. So some, some might do that, some may do it by jurisdiction depending on the differences. So, you know, there are challenges from a HR perspective in terms of, you know, what the aspiration is right at the outset. So, yes, there is always the law and the regulations and what you're obliged by law and regulations to do. And then there's competition and competition with your rivals down the road whose uh, pay is also as transparent as your pay. And everybody knows, if you think about it in Ireland, everybody knows what everybody's going to be earning and every organization's business is out there for public consumption in a way because once the employees know, once the trade unions know or the you know other key stakeholders, once it's published through, um, I don't know how, how these things would be challenged, um, we'll, that's all, all that devil will be in the detail. But, 
you know, once that's out there, everybody knows what everybody's earning everywhere. Um, That's going to be interesting, isn't it? It's a real level playing field right across the board. So when it comes to your policies and procedures and your particular approach, then it's, you know, what's your aspiration, Um, which is usually informed by what your challenge is. So uh, if you look at your challenges, then your challenges are usually your attraction and your retention uh, of the key people in the organization, but also your reputation and your brand and your employer brand out there. That's important, too. Um, So I think your starting point, if you're if you're looking at this whole area now, uh, early, would be understanding the roles and the architecture when it comes to your own organisation, um, and that the criteria that you might apply at this point in time to uh, how you determine the pay for roles. Um, before you even start to benchmark externally and see what other people are doing. And and traditionally in HR, you know, for many, many years, it, we would have always, you know, set, set the pay rates and then looked out to see how you compared to others in your sector. Uh, and if you needed to adjust the pay rates, then you would do that and try and keep yourself aligned anyway, certainly not lagging behind. You'd be trying to keep yourself aligned. So, you know, again, it's it's going to be about, I think, being more thoughtful about how this is going to work, setting up your remuneration committees and, and you know, making sure that that's pretty robust, uh, your information and consultation. You don't hear a lot about that anymore, Shifra. There was a time that people were talking a lot about information and consultation and, you know, setting up those committees. You don't see a huge amount about it. I mean, there's never been much of a fuss really about it. No, so yeah. maybe they'll come back to life at this stage. Uh, I don't know how many organisations out there have those mechanisms now. Um, I don't no, know. I, I remember when the when the 2006 Information and Consultation of Employees Act came in and, you know, I know that employers were very, I suppose, because historically union recognition isn't obligatory here um, we probably have a, a, a low level of um, union participation and, and employees joining unions here um, but people were quite exercised about am I going to have to put an information consultation forum in place and you know I think a lot of people waited to see whether they'd get the requests and they they didn't hugely come in or else some employers did like set one up to to you know be compliant in advance, um, there is a definite push from Europe to to engage more or at least get around the table. I mean, it's not it's not a push to force employers into collective bargaining, but certainly to uh, get around the table. I mean, even that that was seen from the Leaf report that was published last October, I think, as well. That uh, you know, this is something that I think is is going to come down the line. And I mean, I don't know about you, Mary, but like you know there there would have been a, a little bit going on in industrial relations and and in that space i suppose maybe about 15 to 20 years ago but it's been a pretty quiet landscape so uh I think we'll we'll need to get 
uh, some people back <laughs> to, yeah, to help so. with all that work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think probably, I know in 2006, we would have been, you know, involved in setting up and, and helping some of our clients um, with information consultation forums and training on both sides to, you know, help those forums uh, work effectively. And then I guess maybe the, the recession um, quietened that, you know, yeah. that voice from employees. And since then, I, I guess we've been back into the good times uh, in a way where people are well paid. And, you know, when people are well paid, it, it, things quieten down often. Um, and at the moment, I mean, it's just going upwards and upwards. And I think a lot of employers are struggling with no end in sight to the increase in, in rates of pay. Um, but I do, I do think when, you know, fundamentally, always when it comes to change and regulation and what the law says you have to do, um, sometimes we forget that actually there's a manager somewhere who's going to have to sit down with an employee and maybe their trade union representatives and explain what this is, what this gap is, how we arrived at our decision to pay you this rate of pay and how unfavorable it is uh, in comparison to somebody else. And, and, you know, that's a really difficult and challenging discussion. So I, I think it's it's worth taking the bit of time now getting your supports in place uh figuring if you want if you're going to put in place committees or forums um start thinking about it early don't wait don't wait until it's it's upon us just like i i didn't think last year that uh gender pay gap reporting was actually going to come in uh when there was no word of it by march um of 2022 and all of a sudden in may here it is and the deadline is December and it was like wow you have to pick your date and get all your information from <laughs> yeah. June but actually yeah. that goes back to something that I was going to say when you were talking about kind of reporting and and preparation and we've recently published an article just recommending that smaller employers maybe do their gender pay gap reports this year and next year before they, they're, they're obliged to do it because I think and, and this goes to kind of a review of policies for the pay transparency directive because there are a lot more stakeholders involved in that process than just HR. You've got IT, you've got your comms people, you, you know, the, the amount of data that, you know, we helped a lot of employers uh, prepare their reports, you know, reviewed their statistics and did certain models for them, etc. And I, I think that some were taken by surprise as to how much data they needed to give us to help them identify those gaps and, and prepare those statistics. Um, so key stakeholders are key, <laughs> obviously, but, you know, really important that that people know that their input will be required because you could have somebody in IT who will think, why, why do you need me? And it's because of the data that's needed and the reports that you need and, um, you know, then, then communications as well around kind of preparing that, like senior management, because, you know, while now senior managers aren't required to sign off on reports and we still don't have the portal to upload reports that will be required as part of the directive. So it will be kind of a top-down exercise where, you know, a little bit like health and safety, you want to make sure that this is an issue that's being addressed at the top level in the organisation and is filtering down throughout so that 
everyone's aware of it. So all in the spirit of transparency. But, you know, I, I don't like employers shouldn't uh, labor under the misapprehension that this is a HR slash compliance slash legal job. It's not. Everybody needs to, to everybody will have a part to play in it. And I think HR will be trying to argue this is a finance job. <laughs> HR will help with the narrative <laughs> when when you give us the data. So I I do think it'll it's you know it's probably an interesting podcast in itself to talk to um, people who have you know put together this data or led these projects in in terms of how it actually works because like you say that's all well and good when you, if you're a corporate and you can um, establish your project team to deal with something like this. Or if you're a large SME and you can establish those project teams, put them in place, give the time, uh, build it into your processes. That's one thing. But as it starts coming down to the smaller businesses, it'll probably land on one or two people's desks. Um, and again, the more time you have to plan and prepare, the better. But I mean, that goes right across the board. I never like to wait until something is upon me before I start thinking about how I'm going to comply. The time to think about complying is in advance and, you know, setting uh, the, the or being the trailblazer, using it as positive PR for your organization um, has has worked well for um, Post and other organizations. Um, and I think the same could apply here, uh, along with ethnicity reporting. You know, I'm just waiting for someone to in Ireland to start publishing those stats. Um, so, you know, it, interesting landscape landscape a little bit scary for uh UHR people out there who who are already terrified by the amount of change that's occurred between 2022 and 2023 so far um so you know there's always help out there there's been a lot yeah and look I know it's an exciting thing in the whole pay and benefits and all that kind of sphere but as, as you said as both of you said there is a there is a challenge to get this through so hopefully hopefully there is there is a little bit of, I suppose, nerve alleviation from from these kind of conversations. We would love to speak to anyone that is actually working on this in the next few months or so. We'd love to speak to you about it on this podcast. But for now, really appreciate your time, Shiva and Mary. Thank you for some really helpful advice. I know even from my perspective, it's a it's a much clearer thing than it was only only half an hour ago. So we do really appreciate your your thoughts and your insights on this. Thank you to everyone for listening. We'll catch you next week for the next Don't Ever podcast. And don't forget to click subscribe and join the discussion on our social media channels. And as always, for HR consultancy services and management you can trust, get in touch with us today at InsideHR.ie. Thank you, Shiva, and thank you, Mary. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Room podcast, the podcast series from Insight HR that helps you create the human resources systems and workplace culture that's right for your business. For show notes and bonus content, go to www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. That's www.insighthr.ie forward slash podcast. We'd love it if you subscribe, like and share the show with any friends and colleagues who are looking for fresh ideas on how to create the ideal workplace for their business. And remember, if you need any HR support, get in touch with us at Insight HR. Whether it's conducting a complex workplace investigation, filling a gap by providing you with a virtual or an on-site HR resource, or providing advice via our HR support line, we'll help you resolve whatever human resources challenge your business is facing. Thanks, and see you soon.